Hello, I'm Manila Chan. You're tuned in to Modus Operandi. Risky bets, too big to fail, big bailouts for the banks. For many, it's deja vu back to 2008. After several banks in the U.S. collapse, a major international bank stands to go belly up. So were any lessons learned from the financial crisis that wrecked the global economy just 14 years ago? Tonight, we'll discuss the world's financial system in chaos with a former Credit Suisse insider. All right, let's get into the MO. As the old saying goes, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And that might be applicable once again to the global financial system after three American banks collapse in the span of one week, seized by the federal government after some had a run on deposits. Silicon Valley Bank in, you guessed it, Northern California, Signature Bank in Manhattan, and Silvergate Bank in San Diego, California all collapsed. Then within days, the announcement of First Republic Bank, also a California-based bank, getting a cash infusion from bigger banks in an effort to stem the domino effect of banks getting shuttered. All these so-called regional banks wading into the uncertain world of fintech and venture capital. However, an international name in banking now facing colossal collapse with their balance sheets far greater than all those other banks combined. Credit Suisse, with hundreds of global offices, divisions in every sector of the economy, this combination consumer and investment bank has been roiled in controversy from their London offices to Shanghai. So for more on this global banking crisis, we are joined by former Credit Suisse banker David Tawil. He's now the president of ProChain Capital. He's a hedge fund manager with expertise in crypto, venture capital, and he's also an attorney. So Dave, thanks for joining us. Um, Credit Suisse is a 166-year-old company. It's literally an institution in and of itself. First. How has a bank managed to survive and thrive all of these decades up until this point through all the global economic turmoil? I mean, I'm talking uh, world wars, the Great Depression, uh, regional conflicts. How have they survived? What made their business model of banking able to withstand all of these external forces? Uh, so certainly I wasn't at Credit Suisse all those decades ago, uh, but I think, you know, it started out as a national bank, uh, not that it was not owned by the nation, uh, but it certainly was uh, Swiss-centric uh, to begin with. And then uh, in light of the fact that tax avoidance was used by many uh, around the world uh, through Swiss bank accounts, certainly Credit Suisse was able to go ahead and capitalize on that um, when that was uh, in vogue. In addition, over time, the bank expanded far beyond Switzerland uh, with uh, branches, frankly, all over the world and certainly very large presence in all the major financial capitals around the world. And it was able to um, have functions far beyond just deposits and lending, but also very uh, meaningful investment banking activities and wealth management as well. In terms of being able to weather recent crises, um, I, I don't think the bank particularly weathered them well. Uh, its stock price has been hurt, certainly over the last 
10 to 20 years, um, we've seen it erode. And uh, the, the largest shareholders of the company have been from the Middle East. Um, and uh, they, they saw some opportunities in the bank. But I think with all that went away with respect to tax avoidance and the Panama Papers, um, I think a large part of the business has gone away and is, that, is, that is never going to return. Uh, and as you said, the company has a very um, well-known franchise, but uh, it certainly is uh, fighting very harsh competition in, uh, in other investment banks. So that's where the, the bank sees itself and finds itself today. All right. So a lot of nerves are rattled right now in the banking industry uh, on both sides, both customers and bankers. Uh, people on both sides of this, obviously, Credit Suisse is a multinational organization. Though they're getting an infusion from the Swiss Central Bank, is that going to be enough to quell global fears about whether or not their deposits are safe in these dozens of countries that Credit Suisse operates out of? So I'm going to touch on one of the words that you use, which is fears. I think it quelled the panic, but I don't think it has quelled the fears. And what, what I think the infusion and the support from Swiss National Bank does for Credit Suisse is it allows the bank to kind of get right-sized shrink uh, with deposits leaving uh, by those who are fearful over time. Uh, but not in one full swoop in a panic. In a panic, it would be very messy. Uh, it would be destructive to the bank and to depositors and to customers of the bank more generally. And I think certainly that's what the Swiss banking authority wanted to go ahead and provide. It provides some breathing room to go ahead and assess the options for the bank, for the Swiss banking authorities to go ahead and get the bank to a new place, which is clearly, at the very least, a smaller bank, potentially get merged into another bank. There have been rumors about a merger with UBS, which is another Swiss bank, um, or you know, potential nationalization, um, or maybe may rescue by another financial institution that is not Swiss. So it gives a bunch of breathing room. It goes ahead and quells the panic. And you know, we will wait over the next weeks and months to see where Credit Suisse is going to go. Yeah, certainly an important distinction uh, in the industry there between uh, panic and fear. So in the U.S., uh, Q1 of 2023, we saw three regional banks collapse. The feds have taken over and then shuttered SVB, Signature Bank, and Silvergate. Lawmakers and, and people like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tell Americans that our banking system is safe, that these are isolated incidents. But Dave... Three banks in the span of one week on its face means they are not isolated events. Then a week later, this banking giant, Credit Suisse. So a few things here. If you can address uh, for our international audience, these so-called regional banks, SVB, uh, Signature, and Silvergate, they've got an international component to their business models as well. Get into that for us. And why did U.S. regulators allow these banks to fail Whereas in Credit Suisse's case, the ECB prevented them from folding. So it's a lot to digest and respond to, Manila, uh, but certainly all important questions. With respect to the regional banks, uh, their reach is beyond the United States. I think 
mostly we're talking about Silicon Valley Bank or SVB um, and Silvergate. Um, SVB is the cornerstone of the venture capital community. And although venture capital, uh, the capital largely comes from US venture capital managers or venture capital funds, uh, their investors in turn, the venture capital funds get their money from lots of different places all across the world, sovereign wealth funds, you know, in various uh, countries, uh, foundations, high net worth individuals and so forth. And then the other thing, uh, which I think is, is more public is the fact that the ventures themselves, that those venture capital funds invest in are located in all different places around the world. Any technology hub uh, around the world has uh, venture capital driven investments there. And those venture capital investments uh, may have very well banked at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank didn't only have branches here in the United States, they had branch, branches uh, around the world as well, particularly the UK uh, has, been, uh, has been highlighted. Uh, so that's, that's with respect to Silicon Valley. Silvergate, a little bit different. Um, Silvergate was largely tied to uh, crypto and uh, the crypto community you know, is a worldwide community and very much interconnected in the way that they hold, um, they hold crypto, uh, it goes ahead and connects them. But the other thing is that uh, there, there, haven't, there aren't very many, and now there are even less, uh, crypto-friendly banks in the United States. So taking down Silvergate certainly goes ahead and has its tentacles, um, which, which their tentacles you know, are, are throughout the world through the crypto. Um, certainly there's reverberations throughout the world. And then lastly, with respect to Credit Suisse, we're talking about a totally different animal. I, I think it's just, it's, it's a um, it's coincidence of timing that Credit Suisse is coming under massive pressure at the same time as these regional banks. I mean, granted, it, it's not coincidence in the sense that people are scared about their deposits because of what happened to the fail, in the failure of SVB and Silvergate um, and Signature. Uh, that people started to get concerned around Credit Suisse. But Credit Suisse has been floundering for a number of years now. And there have been questions around Credit Suisse's ability to continue. They've had leadership changes. They've had a raft of scandals. Um, and they've been skating on thin ice, so to say, uh, for a long time now. And this has just exacerbated the situation. But in terms of what the ECB is going to do re re related to Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse is a much, much larger institution by magnitudes of, you know, a couple times greater than these regional banks. And like I said earlier, Credit Suisse's um, reach is substantial around the world. It's not that they just have branches in other places. They have actual offices that employ hundreds of people, if not thousands of people in cities like New York and London and uh, Shanghai and in Singapore and, and so on. So I, I think it's, it's a much bigger situation that could, um, if, if it did devolve, could go ahead and affect other large investment banks around the world. And I think that e the ECB would not want that to happen. And coming up next, crypto has disrupted the financial industry all over the world in ways modern banking has never before seen. But could these coins spell ruin for institutions like Credit Suisse? 
That's what one U.S. lawmaker asserts. We'll discuss it when we return with David Tawil. Sit tight. The MO will be right back. the middle of the 19th century, practically the whole of India had been under the rule of the British Empire. The colonial authorities had imposed a heavy tax, bringing the people into poverty and were exporting natural resources. And moreover, these authorities absolutely had no consideration for the traditions of the local population, treating them like second-class citizens. The British were showing signs of disrespect even to those who cooperated with them. The fact of ignoring the religious beliefs of the Hindus led to the mutiny of the sepoys, mercenary soldiers serving under the British crown. The rebellion began on the 10th of May, 1857, in the garrison town of Meru, north of India, in the form of a mutiny. The rebels quickly took over Delhi. The heroic resistance of the Indian people lasted for one and a half years. However, the forces were not equal. The colonial authorities dealt with the rebels cruelly. The enslaved sepoys were tied to the mouth of the cannon and were shot right through their bodies for the amusement of the public. This type of execution was called the Devil's Wind. The obliteration of the mutiny resulted in the death of 800,000 inhabitants of India. However, the British Empire never broke the free spirit of the Indians and their will for resistance. Welcome back to the MO, I'm Manila Chan. The rise of crypto in the past decade could be the creative destruction Joseph Schumpeter, one of the leading 19th century economists foretold. Not since the creation of money itself has something disrupted how we view value and wealth. Dave Tawil, president of ProChain Capital and crypto expert is back with us to discuss. So Dave, let's get into your wheelhouse here, crypto. You are a hedge fund guy. You uh, co-founded ProChain Capital. Signature Bank in Manhattan, a, a large portion of their assets under management come from crypto. Now, you've told me before in the past that Signature, however, is actually best known for its New York City real estate division. So did crypto ultimately add value to the bank's net portfolios, or did it disrupt the business model a little too much, especially given that longtime, he's now retired uh, congressman from Boston, Barney Frank, whose signature legislation, the pun is intended there, uh, was the Dodd-Frank Act after the 2008 financial crisis that was meant to scrutinize financial institutions. Barney Frank 
sat on the board of Signature Bank the last few years up until it folded. He actually took a veiled swipe at crypto recently, saying uh, that when Dodd-Frank was enacted, crypto didn't exist. So is he implying that crypto is what brought down Signature Bank? So there was a lengthy interview done uh, with Barney Frank recently about um, the downfall uh, of Signature. And he, and he really can't say a lot at this point uh, because Signature being closed was really, is the only instance thus far, not that we've had lots of banking failures in the United States, but it's the first time a bank has been shut down for no proof of insolvency. So in fact, Signature wasn't, at least as far as the feds allege, was not insolvent. So what was the purpose of, of closing them? Uh, the risk that they pro posed and what particular risk did they pose? Well, they were a very big bank, as you said, to the uh, to the crypto sector. Their exposure to the crypto sector, though, was first of all, wasn't the, old, the it wasn't the majority uh, of their bank. Uh, I think it was 25 percent of deposits. Um, and then secondly, what they did for crypto firms. And by the way, my firm banked with Signature at the outset of our fund. Thankfully, we've moved away from Signature. And I say thankfully only because we weren't caught in the morass of the past week or so. Um, we moved away from them about a year ago, not for any particular, you know, uh, suspicious reason. Um, we just wanted to be with a, a more, uh, I'd say, less out, less out of the, the limelight bank. Um, but nevertheless, Signature Bank, um, you know, wasn't doing anything odd with respect to crypto. They had no investment in crypto. They simply took deposits from crypto funds and they helped those crypto funds take in investments and then go ahead and use that money. Those funds would go ahead and use that money to buy crypto. But the crypto wasn't held at Signature. They, it was held at crypto custodians or crypto uh, exchanges. So Signature really didn't do much by way of, you know, supporting the crypto world, except for the fact that they banked those enterprises. Uh, but it seems that the Feds have been cracking down and there's this moniker going around uh, of choke point 2.0, meaning the federal government is trying to choke the crypto uh, ecosystem uh, from any sort of breath. Um, one of those breaths that it needs to take is having money move. Uh, you can't get cash or U.S. dollars into crypto without a bank uh, in the middle. And so the, the Fed sent a very serious message to banks around the country you know, that you better beware of being involved or helping, aiding, abetting the crypto uh, ecosystem. And it's really unfortunate because there's nothing criminal per se about helping crypto investment firms. Crypto investment firms are not operating illegally. You know, the question is still out whether they are buying uh, cryptocurrencies that are securities and therefore need to be registered. And maybe that in itself is illegal, uh, but that's a monetary penalty. It's not as if, you know, folks are doing something uh, that is violative of the law that uh, there is consensus on. It's still out in terms of, uh, you know, decision being made either by our courts or by our Congress uh, in terms of whether crypto is a security or not. But it's not as if it's some illicit transaction that's going on. And so, um, yes, Barney Frank did say and did indicate that it had a lot to do with crypto. 
Barney Frank, I think, is distancing himself from crypto generally because he was never a big cheerleader for crypto anyway. And frankly, he doesn't have a lot to gain by being a cheerleader for crypto. So he's sticking to his story. Uh, but in terms of what the federal government has done, it has sent a very serious message uh, to the crypto community and certainly to crypto banks. That being said, one last point on this is that crypto has risen in value massively, uh, well over 20% at this point uh, since this crackdown on uh, Signature Bank started or since Silvergate started, uh, showing the resiliency of cryptocurrency. And frankly, uh, maybe some people would rather have their money in crypto um, where they can go ahead and take care of it at all times and you know, be able to transact it at all times rather than having it in a bank and potentially uh, being at risk uh, of the government shutdown of, the, of that bank. Hmm. Sounds like a, a warning shot the government made there by shuttering Signature and Silvergate then. Uh, so U.S. lawmakers often uh, criticize crypto, saying things like it's the darkest of dark money or that drug dealers and unsavory types will use it to fund illicit activities. They're floating the idea, of course, of the digital dollar, two totally different concepts, obviously. But then going back to Credit Suisse, we're talking cash money with them, in their case, the Swiss franc. Uh, but cold hard cash can be traced back to many so-called nefarious types from around the world. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the, the names that stem from all over the world, Venezuela, Egypt, here in the U.S., uh, so many other places, because I have not been able to independently verify the validity of these account holders, but Credit Suisse is believed to have had some $8 billion in shady assets from these alleged nefarious types. Um, Credit Suisse is being accused of, in effect, money laundering for warlords and drug dealers and so forth. So whether it's crypto or cash, is there any real way to regulate against shady cash or questionable monetary instruments? Certainly not. Uh, there will always be a way for uh, bad actors to go ahead and use value in order to go ahead and transact. As a matter of fact, and, and this is you know, one of the things that I think the public has heard wrong, uh, is that when it comes to crypto, crypto is identifiable. There, there is a, an address that is assigned to every account, to every crypto transaction. And so you can go ahead and attach an address to a human being um, and it can be traced. And that's why we've seen a bunch of situations where crypto was used either in terms of ransom or in terms of, um, you know, other uh, activity to support an otherwise criminal transaction, of, let's say drug trade. Um, they've been able to trace those, those, those cryptos and in fact, get them back, those cryptocurrencies, excuse me, and get them back for the benefit of the original owners. Uh, in, in the cases of theft. And, uh, and in contrast, cash, hard cash, like greenbacks, right, can't be traced at all unless somebody goes ahead and, um, you know, uses a certain serial number and deposited, deposits it in a certain bank. So, in fact, crypto is better for fighting crime uh, than cold hard cash. In terms of bank accounts, Certainly, there are ways to go ahead and track your account holders and what they do and where they transfer and so on and so forth. And yeah, you know, uh, I'll go a step further than you. 
uh, and say certainly Credit Suisse has supported, whether knowingly or unknowingly, let's leave that out for a second, uh, you know, criminals. And so have other banks, um, certainly. And they've been tagged and, you know, they, sometimes they pay fines. Um, and that's all that really ever happens. They, no one ever gets carted off to jail uh, from one of these banks for having supported uh, one of those types of schemes, even knowingly. Uh, certainly, it's usually a fine uh, that is that is you know lodged onto the financial institution. So no, no matter what, you're going always going to have bad actors. You're going to have people that facilitate those bad actors, and it's a question of you know I think with respect to cryptocurrency, uh, it's actually one of the best medium to go ahead and track people and track accounts, and so therefore being able to identify bad actors or those who facilitate those bad actors um, in contrast to what has been said uh, from those on the very far left, like Elizabeth Warren. All right, well, go into that for us. What, what about Elizabeth Warren? Oh, um, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so Elizabeth Warren comes from a place that's near and dear to my heart, which is bankruptcy law. That's what she was. Uh, she was a professor of bankruptcy law at Harvard uh, before becoming uh, a senator, uh, but she didn't focus when practicing bankruptcy law, I focused on uh, the bankruptcy of corporations and businesses. Uh, she, her focus was personal bankruptcy, uh, which is, I'd say, you know, although very sympathetic, uh, sometimes uh, misses the mark when it comes to the, the importance of bankruptcy law. But um, since she's been a senator, uh, she has been, uh, by her own admission, a champion uh, of, I'd say, you know, the lower and middle class. She thinks that all institutions, uh, financial and otherwise, are out to rob uh, those, uh, th those, those individuals uh, in some way, whether it robbed them financially or robbed them of opportunity in life uh, or robbed them, you know, of paying more taxes uh, than, than, you know, wealthier or more successful people. And th this has been her position. As a matter of fact, to go back to an earlier question that we discussed regarding Silvergate, um, Senator Warren penned a, a public, uh, the letter is public, regarding Silvergate, throwing a lot of um, doubts out publicly regarding the stability of the bank. And many in Congress and many pundits that follow Congress felt that that was incredibly out of line, um, because you could argue that Senator Warren actually was the straw that broke the camel's back, started the run on the bank, started everybody thinking about, well, maybe we should go ahead and shut this bank down. And for Congress to go ahead and pick winners and losers, uh, I think is very, very wrong. Um, although, you know, congressional uh, appointees are known to go ahead and invest their personal money, and this is a whole other conversation, in stocks that they know are getting favorable treatment in stocks of companies that they know are getting favorable treatment on the Hill. This is really a step too far, uh, where you go ahead and use your pulpit to call out a particular institution. It's one thing to go ahead and call up the Department of Justice or the FDIC and maybe give them a tip or tell them, to, you know, to go ahead and hone their focus on a particular institution, but to call it out publicly in a letter that everybody is going to read and not necessarily be supported by facts. A bunch of, you know, the, the, the statements in the letter were questions. Are they, you know, on, financial, uh, on financially solid ground and so on? 
it just sows doubt in, in the public. And that's incredibly, incredibly inappropriate. And I think, you know, she should be called out very loudly for what she for what she did, you know, in the case of Silvergate, which may very, very well have started the daisy chain of what we now see in the cases of um, Signature, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, and so on. David Tawell, president of ProChain Capital. Unfortunately, I am out of time, so we'll have to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for having me, Manila. And that is going to do it for today's episode of Modus Operandi, the show that digs deep into foreign policy and current affairs. I'm your host, Manila Chan. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again next time to figure out the M.O. Thank you.